Hi, my name is Brittany Ashley, and welcome to the very first episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. I am just as surprised as you that we made it here, that we're listening to me speak, that I've dedicated the last few months of my life to interviewing other people who have lost their mom. And this journey is only just the very beginning, and I feel like I've had just a permanent lump in my throat since the first interview. To me, being motherless is an identity that I haven't interrogated very much. I never went to therapy for it. I never read the books. I sadly haven't gone on a Hollywood medium show to connect with her. Okay, in eighth grade, my friends and I did try to have a seance to speak to her, but I just don't think that it was a spirit-friendly atmosphere, and we probably had the wrong candles. For my first guest, I really wanted to speak specifically to another woman who had lost her mom at a young age, so I was elated that Mara Wilson said yes. For anyone who doesn't know Mara, Mara is a writer. I actually read her book, Where Am I Now?, in preparation for this interview, and she's also an actor known for her childhood roles in Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda. Mara lost her mom when she was eight years old, right after filming Matilda. I've been making little iPhone notes all week <laughs> of what I was going to ask you, write yeah. your book, because you're actually the first other woman who has lost their mom at a young age that I've ever talked to. Oh, yeah? yeah. Really? Have you found others? I have. I And I write this in my book. I, I call this the saddest sorority. And and some of them were, you know, a little bit later. But I, I remember, like, when I met my friend Julia, I felt something very familiar about her and like the way that she talked, the way that she handled herself, the way that she, you know, she seemed she seemed very independent, but also kind of wanting to mother everybody. But also she was loud and funny in the same way that I was. And then she said that her mom had died when she was 11. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, I get it. I get I get where this like sort of, you know, mirror image kind of thing comes from. When you were in school, do you remember how other kids reacted or like what other kids would ask you? I remember coming back. Actually, I remember a few weeks or a few months before my mother's my mother died. I was in class and I was having a really bad panic attack day. I was crying and this girl turned to me and very like kind of gently and sincerely and innocently said, Mara, didn't your dad die? Oh. And I burst into tears. I was already, you know, and I and I remember going home and talking to my dad about that and being like, I don't want you to die, dad. Why are they saying things like this? And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I was I was in my 20s that what I realized probably what happened was somebody's mom said, oh, that poor girl, her mother is dying. And the the daughter, you know, overheard and misunderstood and her dad or something somehow, but she thought it happened in the past. So she said, didn't your dad die? And, and that is such like a heartbreaking thing that people were already talking about that people were already saying like her mother is dying. And it made me it made me really sad to think about that as an adult to think about like and and angry too in some ways like what the hell were these adults doing why send me their goddamn business people underestimate what their kids know and I remember going to the um the guidance counselor every single day and uh, kids kids would say that I was crazy because I was angry and I was getting into fights and there was. You know, there were there were all of these these, you know, hard times. And then I remember like getting really mad at kids when they would make your mom jokes and they wouldn't oh, understand same. why. <laughs> yeah, they would like they'd be like, I just made it your mom joke. Why did you push me into the fence? And 
but in some ways I'm, I'm like was i looking for a reason to be angry the the year mom thing was for anyone who doesn't know there's a lot there was a huge period of time where your mom jokes were the the rage oh really yeah. i don't then, know if it's still the rage there was very much a mid 90s late 90s <sighs> yeah there was definitely a thing so the town that i had grown up in my mom went to that elementary school and that high school and my grandma like volunteered at my elementary school and so when my mom had passed away, every single person in the school knew because they said it over the intercom. Oh, and it was just okay. and yeah. it was something that everyone knew and everyone was very warm about. But when I moved in sixth grade, oh, yeah, um, nobody knew. And the way that people found out was I had a crush on uh, back in my straight days. I had a crush <laughs> on this guy, Nick Oates. And um, we were in the cafeteria for lunch and he was making your mom jokes and he got to me. And he, he did a your mom joke, and I said, my mom is dead. And he thought I was joking, and he was like, that's really, like, it was like, that's really dark. And then I was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. And that's how people in my new town found out. I do remember I had this friend who, he and I had this kind of like, like, I remember having a crush on him in third grade because... I felt like he 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 was like the only other Jewish kid in the class and he was like smart. So I was like, oh, OK, obviously we're friends. And, you know, obviously, like I'm supposed to have a crush on you because this is what, you know, nice Jewish girls do, <laughs> I guess. And uh, we had this sort of but we had this sort of like weird competitive thing back and forth for years. And I remember he, he was like, I'm almost as tall as my mom now. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's because your mom's really short. And I didn't realize how mean that sounded. And he said, well, at least I have a mom. He was like as devastated that he had said it as I was. And I remember uh, the teacher pulling him outside and then pulling me outside. And there were tears running down his face. And I think it was because he knew that he had said something terrible and he felt bad about it. For a few weeks, he'd be like, hey, Mara, do you want to work in the reading assignment together? And I would just be like, no, it was just a shock. It was a shock that he had gone there, you know, and there was... Um, there was a lot of like, you just don't, you just don't touch that. You just don't talk about that. And everybody who knew would not bring it up. I think there was also, a, there were also a lot of kids who were scared too. And my dad told me, you know, he said a lot of times when something horrible happens, people don't know what to do. They don't know how to relate to you. And that's going to be, you know, a problem. And I also felt like there were people that I couldn't relate to either. I, I, I couldn't do. And it wasn't, and it wasn't just like, oh, I'm, um, you know, I, I can't do the Mother's Day card, but just like there were things that they they just weren't going to understand. I remember going to like a, a grief group when I was young and I I don't think I was really ready to be, be be there and be processing it. But I do remember being there once and somebody saying, I feel like my dad's death has opened up my eyes. And I was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And then like a year later, I was like, oh, I know what she's talking about. It It definitely does feel like there's something that I have that that I can understand that I can see that other people can't there was there was a lot of that there was having trouble relating to other kids and I do think that it it also by necessity makes made me more independent because there were things that other kids just weren't going to understand and it seems like the the awareness certainly comes from some sort of like innocence of being a child that you get taken away from you yeah definitely almost like this fantastical idea about life gets taken away yeah it does it does it really it, it is like it's just like oh i'm vulnerable <laughs> i'm as vulnerable as i as i'm afraid that i am and you also see that your parents aren't invincible or immortal even that's very hard i think and it, i think it's also very hard to see the other parent go through something too. oh my god i'm yeah. 
horrified of my dad passing away. Yeah. It's the thing that I think scares me most in this world. Yeah, that's that's a really hard thing. I mean, I remember being so worried when my dad uh, when my dad would come home a few minutes late. You know, I would I would like write in my diary. Where's my dad? Is he okay? And even we were going through moments when I was getting older where he we weren't the closest. It was still just this incredibly like like vulnerable spot, you know, and I would have defended my dad over anything. Even if we were fighting, I would have, you know, I would have done anything to like make sure that he was okay. And it was it was hard. It was. It, it that definitely was a thing. <laughs> Rule Dahl was my favorite author when I was a kid. Yeah. And I wonder if it was because his books were about kids being able to like live in this fantastical world and you yourself as the reader, yeah. you enter into like these crazy worlds. Perhaps that's why I love those books so much, including Matilda, obviously. But you were in the unique situation of you were in this fantastical world of filming Matilda and then you lost your mom and you kind of lost like these two timelines ended at the same time. It was really hard. I mean, I remember as soon as we stopped filming Matilda, I started having terrible panic attacks and I couldn't explain why. And they got worse and worse. And, and, you know, my mother was was not getting better. She was doing everything she could to to manage it. But I do think that I picked up on that sort of subconsciously. But I don't think that I believed that my mother would ever die because my mother was a, a force. It's odd to me sometimes that other people don't know her because she was such a strong personality. And everybody in my hometown of Burbank, California, about 20 minutes away, everybody knew her and everybody, everybody respected her. You know, everybody respected her. A lot of people, you know, I had so many women say your mom was the best friend I ever had to me. And she she definitely had difficulties, too. And she came from a really hard background. And I think that's probably also why she liked Roald Dahl, because she had parents that by necessity could not take care of her because of the the many health problems and mental health problems and all kinds of things that that came with I mean that that mostly came with being you know an Ashkenazi Jew in the in the early 20th century you know just centuries of 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 trauma building up and all that epigenetic stuff so they couldn't really take care of her so she was very much on her own and she very much you know saw the world so so she had kind of a dark sense of humor we all had a little bit of a dark sense of humor and uh and I think that's what drew us to, you know, to Roald Dahl's books. And she loved Matilda because she had this sort of, she liked the idea of a strong female character, I think. And she really, Matilda really resonated with her. So it was like a double loss. I mean, it, it, 1996 was, and it's funny because 2016 was very similar when my book came out. And it was just a shitty year. And 1996 was also a shitty year. And and so it just kind of makes me feel like, you know, I have all these memories of like what should have been a a wonderful thing, but everything just feels kind of like a Pyrrhic victory. Everything's like, what have I, you know, there's so much sacrifice. There's so many things that I've lost along the way. And I, I look back and it's all, it's all so bittersweet because I was playing this character that I really loved, but I just, you know, I just withdrew into myself and it was, it was really hard. You seem to know a lot about your mom like how she was outside of being a mother yeah who have you asked these questions to or how do you how did you get this information well my mom was kind of an open book you know one thing that I like got from my dad my dad is like a very observant guy and and so I think that that's something that we kind of got from from that you know my dad was sort of sensitive and like would pick up on on you know the things that my mom was going through I also have you know I have three older brothers and they all remember her in very different ways but they all have their memories and um and so 
we we can talk about that and we can talk about the different ways that we see her and it's interesting because we all have like different views on her but it's all you know it, it all forms this this image of of a woman but also like i said she was a legend in our community and so you know friends of hers would would always talk about her and talk about the things she did i mean we went everywhere together because we were i was filming so she was with me but yeah, I think that there was a lot that I just picked up on. There was a lot of stories that my dad had. There were a lot of stories that my brothers had. And it was weird because I think, I don't know if this happens to everybody, but I remember there were times afterwards where it was just like we were kind of too in shock to talk about her. We didn't, it was like too hard to, because that would be acknowledging that she was gone. So there was like a year or so where we just did not talk about her very much. Or if we did, it was like it was a secret, you know, like hushed tones you know, like, like, you know, when my dad was tucking me in at night or something like that, you know, or my, when my brothers and I were having like a hard day. But other than that, like, we never brought it up. We just didn't want to think about it because I think it was just, it was too much for us. Yeah, it's something that you kind of keep in the back of your mind. And then once it gets brought up, it's like, okay, this could be mm -hmm. a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there were these like moments of like really beautiful, like sweetness and tenderness that we would have. But like, it was almost as if, you know, the next day we were embarrassed about it, you know, like almost like, I don't know. And I feel like I had this a lot where I would get these sort of like emotional, emotional, like, like things. And then like the next day I'd be like, oh, God, I can't believe somebody saw me that emotional. Like I'd been drunk or like something. Emotional the night hangovers. Exactly. Yeah. Emotional hangovers. It's a great way of winning it where like I would avoid somebody who'd seen me cry or who'd heard me talk about my mom in depth because I was like, oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> And I also think that's something, I mean, my mom was very much a believer in, in her whole thing was you have to be smart and you have to be strong. Her mom was much more about like, you have to be beautiful, you have to be admired. And, and my mom turned away from that so much so that like, it took me a long time to be like, oh, you know what? If I actually put into the thought into the way that I dress and like the way I do my hair, it doesn't make me a bad, shallow person. <laughs> you know, my, cause my, that was the kind of feeling that I got from my mom. My mom had this sort of, I don't know if it was like residual second wave feminism thing or if it was, you know, that she felt like her mom always pressured her into wearing jewelry and makeup when she didn't want to. And she was very comfortable, you know, driving me to school in her nightgown. <laughs> I, I think that uh, I think that like it took me a while to be like, oh, OK, I can I can like have an aesthetic and that doesn't make me shallow. You know, it's it's probably not going to be super hyper feminine, but it's it's going to be, you know, I can I can embrace that about myself. It's actually kind of funny how many things like. It took me so long. Like there were shows that I didn't want to watch or bands I wouldn't listen to or all these things because I knew my mom wouldn't like them. It took me like 10 years to realize like, oh, OK, I don't need to automatically think would my mom like this or not. But that was the thing. It was it was always her judgment, you know, in the back of my head. I also feel like I got into a kind of a metaphysical thing as I got older where I realized just all the things my mom was missing out on. Like, oh, uh, I never told that joke to my mom. Or, oh, she never would have read this book. And I still get that every now and then where I think, I still think like, oh, my mom died before 9-11. My mom never would have seen <laughs> this election. You know, some of these things it's good that she missed out on, but also she missed out on other things too. And and that's, uh, and that's you know, it's, it's hard to think about, but it just kind of blows my mind all the things she was and was not there for. Aside from like the cultural things that she's missing, are there certain moments in your life, like in the future that you are going to find a way to like honor her? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I am doing that. And it's 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 taken me a while to like admit like or even to think like, oh, my mom would be proud. My sister sometimes calls me a big sister to the world. 
because I'm I'm very good at being like you need to take better care of yourself and you know and I've always been you know the mom of the friend group and all that you know like oh you're having asthma I have mucinex you want to borrow my inhaler I know that's you know technically off label but you know you're okay and uh, I won't tell if you don't and and I remember like when I was in middle school I really wanted to be one of the kids who went to talk to the elementary school kids about what middle school was like, even though I was having a miserable time in middle school. But I wanted to be a, a you know, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be somebody who could help people. And I felt happiest when I was helping people, especially younger people. And I was thinking about that because the anniversary of my mother's death was just last week. My mother died like two weeks before Mother's Day. So like right when I got back to school, everybody was making fucking Mother's Day cards. And that was incredibly hard. But last weekend I went up to Idlewild and I talked to students there and, you know, telling them, giving them advice and like they were, they were really into it and they were giving me hugs and they were so kind and there were little kids there too that I was talking to and trying to like make them happier and make them, you know, feel better about themselves and encourage them. And I thought, oh, this is exactly what my mom would have wanted because even when she was like freaking out at home and like we saw, we saw like all of her, you know, all of her issues at home, but she was always willing to help other people and always willing to help her community and always willing to help kids in the community and that stuff I think is when when I'm doing those kinds of things is when I feel like my mom would be proudest of me but for a while my you know people would say your mother would be so proud of you and I would cringe and I also think that there were a lot of times where I would think would my mom be okay with what I was doing? Would she have been okay with me moving to New York? How would my mom ever related to, you know, the to to, you know, the guys that I dated? How would my mom have related to to, you know, my queerness? How would that would, you know, how would everything have worked? And I mean, I think she would have been like understanding and accepting of everything, but but I but you know, there's there's no way to know for sure, so there's always like the doubt of of what it is. And really, I don't know, I do feel like I'm I'm closest to her when I'm reaching out, when I'm helping people. And it gives me like a really warm feeling. It gives me like a doubly, you know, like a like a second warm, fuzzy feeling. Like first I get the thing from helping people and reaching out. And then I get it again from thinking mom would be proud of me now. But like I said, this is only something that I've been able to do in like the past three, four or five years. <laughs> I mean, I remember reading Motherless Daughters when I was 23 and being like, yep, that's Yes. And it took me a really long time. My, I had a therapist who gave me the book when I was 13 and I couldn't read it because it was too painful. And then I read it again at 23 and I was like, nope, this is, this makes sense. And I looked at like the, what it talked about with like patterns of attachment with, with friends and, and romantic attachments. And I was just like, oh, okay. So this explains both the fact that I am extremely avoidant, but also extremely clingy, you know, that I that I need to feel like I have control that, you know, that it explains I was like that that explains so much. Was it is it like because you have like a loss of intimacy that you try and yeah. put it all towards your romantic relationships in a way? I think so. I think that that's what it is. And that's such a like that's such a like weird. It sounds like weird and creepy and Freudian, but I do think <laughs> that like. When, you know, you don't have, you don't have, you know, my college boyfriend could always go home to his parents. And I mean, I, I had my parents and I, and, you know, I, I love my dad and my stepmom very much. Um, but, you know, for a while, I think that I didn't really process my, it took me years to process my mother's death and what it really meant to me, especially since I always felt that, uh, at least on the surface, my, my mother and I were so much alike, you know, she always understood. She was the kind of person who, 
you know, she would she would just be like, don't do that. Or what are you thinking? Or, you know, she she saw me looking at a picture of my third grade class and she said, why are you biting your lip? Who do you have a crush on? You know, she was very she seemed to she knew everything. And uh, and my you know, when I was a teenager, my my dad and stepmom are both pretty reserved people and I was not reserved at all. So I felt very different from them. You know, I, I remember also like I would date people based on their families. And that's really embarrassing. But that's probably why I've dated like friends, siblings. And I've dated, uh, I've dated. Um, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And like, after like my first boyfriend, when I my like, when we broke up, I missed his mom so much, because she was this like, lovely, you know, talkative Jewish mother. And, and I missed that I needed that in my life. And I think that that was something that that I hadn't realized that I needed. And that was a really that was a really that was a sad thing for me to lose. But yeah, I think that it is sort of about, you know, it's it's obviously like sexual intimacy is a completely different thing. Romantic intimacy is a completely different thing. But I do think that that, you know, there's a sort of psychodynamic thing going on. You get into these patterns when you're young. And I think that you end up replaying out those patterns. You know, if somebody abandons you when you're young, a lot of times, you know, I think a lot of those people go on to be the type of person who abandons somebody else because it's kind of them taking control of the situation. And and this happened in friendships, too. And I remember, like, for a long time, because my mom was a really tough woman, I would be drawn to friends, not thankfully not usually not partners, um, but I would be drawn to uh, although there have been one or two where I'm like, oh, where I thought that they were like very tough and strong. It turns out they were just mean. <laughs> and people would be like, why are you with them? And I'm like, well, they're being, you know, they're, they're telling it like it is. Maybe this is, you know, maybe they're a tough person, but people will be like, no, they're just mean. They're just control freaks. You know, I do think that there is this absence in your life and you tried to fill it with with friends, with relationships, with these things until until I think you can finally find it in yourself. So this like familiarity that you were almost searching for in a way, I think that my obsession with nostalgia in the 90s. Yeah, it's probably very connected to the fact that my mom passed away in 94. I like idolize the 90s because I'm like, that was the best time for everything. But it also was probably the time where my innocence was peak. You know, it's funny because I am an object of 90s nostalgia. But when I think back to the 90s, I just think sadness. I mean, I think of like kick ass music and, oh, yeah. you know, I, I still I listen very much to like all the bands my brothers listened to and all the, you know, all the singers. And I mean, I'm like I'm like still super into Riot Girl and Britpop and all that. But like and like, oh, God, and like 90s girl groups. Yeah, the best. Assault. <gasps> Hell yeah. I love Baruch Assault. See, there is see, there is my anthem. Yeah. I, I, you know, the the angry girl just boiling below the surface. That is very much me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, and Vogue and TLC. Yeah, of course, like music was great. But like, I feel weird. And for a while, I thought that that was because uh, that I that was because I was an object of 90s nostalgia, so I felt kind of weird being about it. Like, I remember BuzzFeed inviting me to a 90s party, and I was just like, I don't feel comfortable with this. But also, I think it's because I was so depressed and I was so sad in the 90s where, you know, when my mom died. And, you know, there's there's things about it now. I can look back on it more fondly now, but, like, I moved back to L.A., and I did not think I ever would. I was so done with L.A. when I was a teenager. I went, you know, I went to boarding school up in Idlewild, and I loved it there, and it was a really good nurturing environment for me. And I, and then I went to New York, and I was like, I'm never going to go back. 
I think that I started to to get more like I I started having really bad seasonal affective disorder and seasonal migraines and all these problems. I mean, I couldn't wait for seasons, and then I got there and realized all the problems seasons caused. And I remember talking to my doctor, and she was like, you know, you should spend more time in the sunlight in the winter. And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I could ever move back to L.A. It's so depressing there. And she was like, well, why do you think it's depressing? And I said, like, but I just have so many. I just don't think I like L.A. Or I said, I said, I was just really I had a hard time growing up in L.A. And she goes, well, also your mom died. And I was like, yeah, that might that might be it. And I think that it's it's, you know, maybe that's why most of my family moved away from L.A. We we had, you know, weird memories there. But it's strange to me now that I uh, that I like to come back now. I do feel nostalgic in a way. And especially when I'm walking around Burbank which Burbank has suddenly become cooler, which is weird to me. And and like I look around and I like see the way people are dressed and I'm like, this, this was never the way that it was. But going around there and seeing and seeing these things and thinking about like how much love my mom had for for that city. And I do feel like since I've moved back to L.A., I do feel like I'm I'm able to I don't know, I feel like maybe it is like me connecting to my mother's memory more being back here. Uh, I also feel that when I'm in San Francisco, because that was when my, like, when my sister was a baby and and uh, we were filming Doubtfire, the three of us were together all the time and we had sort of this thing. And I also realized what it was that drew my mom to L.A. because being in, LA, being in New York, everybody was like me. Everybody was neurotic and ambitious and self-deprecating and, and moody and, you know, morbid and... That doesn't mean that I'd wanted to be around them. <laughs> I realized that, especially dating, people would be like, you know, oh, you should meet this sarcastic person and, you know, go on a date with them. And I was like, no, I don't want that. I, you know, and I got why my mom wanted to be out here and and why, you know, you you nurture this other part of yourself as well. I I think that there's there's nothing more L.A. and more Californian than being on a self-improvement streak. And I think that <laughs> my mom liked that about about L.A. You know, an interesting thing happened a couple months ago, or actually years ago now. Wow, I've been here for a, over a year now. So I'm in like 50 secret feminist Facebook groups. And Same. I was talking about moving back to L.A. and asking people where they wanted to live. And this one woman I knew, kind of through friends but I never met in person, said, oh, my wife and I are moving to Burbank. And uh, they have a they had a toddler. And I was like, oh, where are you thinking of moving? And she named the neighborhood. And I said, that's my old neighborhood. What street? And she named the street. And it was my old street. And I said, which block? And it was my old block. <laughs> so my sister and I went, went and, and we, we, uh, and they did end up moving there and they did, uh, they were just, just, just looking at the house, but they did end up moving there. So my sister and I went out to lunch with, with her and her wife and their baby. And we, we were walking down the street and we were both tearing up because we were thinking like their daughter is going to, you know, ride her bike on the same pavement that we did and and go to the same she goes to the same preschool that we did and she's going to the same elementary school that my sister went to and there's this really nice feeling of like oh yeah, you know, there are, there were good things here. There were happy memories here and I think that I think it, it that also kind of made us realize like oh, you know, we we did have some good times. We did we were in some ways very lucky to have the things that we did. And it I I think that seeing somebody else go through these things, you know, and, and, you know, being able to give their daughter like a happy life that made us, at least it made me go like, oh, you know, I'm, I am appreciative for what I've had. And I do have happy memories. 
are there any memories that you have of, of, of feeling guilty for anything that you had like done as a child that you sometimes overshadow the happy ones? Oh my God. Yeah. All the time. I mean, I remember like, like being mean to my mom when she was sick and doing these things. And I think like, I don't know, I think maybe in some ways I was, I was scared to see her weak. And I've heard that this can happen a lot when, when a kid's like, when, when someone has a sick parent or a sick mom, the kid acts out kind of hoping that they'll get in trouble because that means that the parent is in control again. I think I, I misbehave sometimes when my mom was, you know, I'd get into fights at school when my mom was sick or because I was sort of, I was so angry and I, I wanted things to go back to the way they were and back to the way they were meant my mom was, was strong and powerful and in control and being the disciplinarian, you know, and Maybe I was testing my dad as well afterwards, you know, when I was getting I was, I was fighting with the boys at school and the boys were all calling me crazy. I wanted to see, you know, what my dad would do. I mean, I don't obviously none of this was conscious because I was, what, eight years old, nine. But I, I look back and I felt just tremendous guilt. And I do remember thinking my anxiety was so bad then. I, and I remember, remember my mom being exhausted when I had panic attacks. And I remember asking my dad, do you think I made her worse? Do you think my anxiety, my, my, you know, do you think that made her worse? And he said, every time a family goes through something, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a loss, parents, you know, some, something happening with the parents, something happening with the family, a child always thinks that it's their fault and it never is. So he, he said that to me and, and he was very understanding and like, like I get a lump in my throat thinking about how kind and understanding he was about that and how wise that was. In one of the chapters in your book, you talk about how even though your mom was very sick and physically weak, that mm -hmm. she organized a birthday scavenger hunt for you. And yeah. Just the things that she would try to do, even though it was like beyond her physical ability. Yeah. I remember those were the days when she was she would come to tuck me and my sister in and then she would end up falling asleep on my sister's trundle bed. But we didn't, you know, we, we were happy to have her there. We, we just liked having her there. You know, I, I mean, I remember, um, like a few months before she died going up to like, to, to like Big Sur or someplace and going hiking. And I don't think we realized why our mom wanted to go to these places that she loved, you know, for the last time. But like looking back, it was like, oh, she, you know, she she knew that she probably wouldn't be able to. And I remember my brother saying, like, yeah, I remember she was supposed to go to an REM concert with, with us and dad, but she was too sick to go. And she was really sad about that. And I was like, how many months before she died was that? And I thought back to, to that, and I was like, oh, wow, she knew even then. But we would, we would, you know, we had these, like, really nice moments with her, and I think that she was trying very hard to have that. And that was that's one of my one of my fondest memories is you know and her telling me like you shouldn't expect you know I asked her I was like are you gonna do something cool like you did last year for my birthday and she's like you shouldn't expect things like that Mara come on and then I was like yeah I probably shouldn't and the next morning I woke up and there were you know there were all these things you know saying go downstairs go to the tv go to this room you know and on the kitchen table there was a, a bag full of presents with a teddy bear in it and you know messages of love um I actually remember we had notes on the door that said, like, do you have your lunch? Do you have your keys? Here's a, uh, here's a kiss. I love you, Mom. 
And one of my brothers, I never figured out which, put a note next to them with an arrow after she died saying, do not remove. And I never found out which one it was, but I, I kind of, I mean, I'm close with my brothers, but I kind of loved them for that. I loved them for having that, that, you know, that tenderness and that, that ability to do that. And it was, it was incredibly nice and it stayed up until we moved. I look back and it's kind of sad that some of the happiest memories I have are like right before she died, but I'm, I'm glad that she was able to do that. I do think that having a disease, you know, gives you like a new lease on life a lot of times and get, puts things into perspective and priorities and you know I've seen that with with other people I know too and and uh you know it sucks that she couldn't recover from that disease and, and go on to live you know a happier life but I've, I've seen that and uh I don't know I'm, I'm glad that we had those it was a hard for a while I didn't even want to think about the years she was sick but now I can look back and I can be like I'm glad we had that time together In your book, you talk about how after your mom passed that a lot of people reminded you of her, like the the mom on Malcolm in the Middle, <laughs> a woman on a wanted poster. When yeah. was the last time that you had that moment? Oh, I'm I'm not sure. I I I feel like uh there's there's every now and then I'll get, you know, when I sometimes I meet like a Jewish mom or something like that, I um I'll, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you you remind me of my mom very much. There was uh, there was a, a woman. There's actually a, a she's a she's a psychoanalyst and a and a law professor uh, at USC who wrote this beautiful book on mental illness called uh, The Center Cannot Hold Ellen Sachs. And she uh, she has lived with uh, with like delusions and schizophrenia her her whole life uh, while also managing to be like, I think, like a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford, is is, you know, is incredibly brilliant and and, you know, and is like happily married and has friends and is a, you know, law professor at USC and is really accomplished. And she did a TED talk and something about the way that she talked she had the same like low voice that my mom had it made me wonder like oh are we related <laughs> is this is this like another ashkenazi woman and i'm like oh mental illness runs in my family too you know probably you know probably we we've got like a third cousin in there somehow and i did think that that was kind of funny uh and that that did also remind me very much of like you know my mom my mom struggled with her own family's mental illness and you know, there's there's some there's a kind of maybe there's just a way of being that comes with dealing with your own mental illness as well as other people's. You know, maybe it's a similar way. I do think that it was it was funny that she was the one that reminded me of that. But also, you know, my mother was an incredibly well-spoken woman. So any any woman who is very intelligent and seems very academic and, you know, and like I always feel like my mom would have killed at Jeopardy, uh, you know, and when she did crossword puzzles like she knew everything. I was like, how did how do you do this? My brothers can remind me of my mom sometimes, which is which is very funny. Um, and I think I'm finally at a place now where in some ways I remind myself of my mom. I'll listen to something. But that's something I always expected. I think that it's also kind of nice that now I can remind myself of my dad, too, because I think that, you know, you do get into this place. Like, I don't want to fictionalize my mom. I don't want to mythologize my mom. Is there a part of you either like physically or personality wise that other people will say like, Oh man, you remind me of your mother. Oh, all the time. Uh, I definitely look like my mom. I'm short like my mom. I'm yeah. I'm I'm a short curvy brunette like my mom. And I I 
Like, I don't have her eye color, but I have, like, everything else. And there's, you know, people who knew it will always say, you know, when I'm – when if I give, like, a speech or something, people will be like, oh, you're so well-spoken, just like your mother. You know, you're you're so tough, just like your mother. And uh, people who knew her will say that. I don't know. I wonder why I couldn't hear it for so long. I wonder why that was such a – I don't know. Maybe it felt blasphemous or something, you know? I feel like – because my mom felt mythological, and I, I was like, oh, you can't compare me to her. I'm, I'm not. And I would feel like, you know, in, inherently disappointed. I think that also like my mom, I am completely allergic to pity. I can't stand being pitied. I hate it so much. So how do you tell people that your mom passed away? Like, how do you deal with people? It's hard. <laughs> get, like responding to that. I mean, sometimes I just change the subject as quickly as possible. And I'll just be like, oh, my God, that sucks. And I'll be like, yeah, it does. Anyway. And and sometimes uh, it's it's uh, because, yeah, I don't like to be the object of pity. And my mother never liked to be the object of pity either because she liked to be in control and she wanted to be seen as strong. And pity, I feel like, felt sort of inherently condescending to her. So with the anniversary uh, a week ago, with Mother's Day next week and whenever yeah. her birthday is, is there a certain like tradition that you have for certain days? I try just to take it easy on myself and I try to do something nice for other people because if I just focus on myself, I'll feel sad. I felt like I did it well this year because what I did is I went up to Idlewild and I talked to the kids there and gave a speech about what they could do. There is, I mean, my mom like officially died like a, in the middle of the night. So there are kind of two days that are tainted for me. That was hard. That was, and so it, it is like there are two days where, one day in particular, I think where I am, I am usually kind of a wreck. I try to reach out to my family. I try to talk to them. And some years it's harder than others. Some years I feel very supported and welcomed and, and, and okay. And uh, some, sometimes it's harder but I always try to kind of, and, and and on my mother's birthday too, I always try to pay it forward because she was so into community service and helping others. So I try to just like, I don't know, I'll find, I'll, I'll, you know, have like apples and granola bars in my backpack and I'll, you know, and water and I'll give them to like, you know, to, to people I see on the streets who don't have homes and, you know, I'll, I'll do things like that. I'll, I'll try to volunteer at like a children's organization or, or an animal shelter or something like that. Sometimes, sometimes that's too much for me. Sometimes I can't do that, but Around that time, I always try to do something like that because I feel like it makes me feel closer to her. I do, you know, do the do the the Yarzite, you know, Jewish visiting of the of the um, her grave. Actually, I was in Chicago shortly, like on her birthday a couple of years ago, and I I had this really like emotional thing. And I'm not very like superstitious or into ritual or anything, but. I remember going down to, you know, uh, Lake Michigan. It is Lake Michigan there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I went down to the shores there, to the shore there, and I just kind of sat and cried for a little while. And uh, the Jewish tradition is you don't really put flowers on graves, you put stones. So I gathered up a bunch of stones from Lake Michigan and put them in a bag. Uh, I also got a Cubs lanyard <laughs> because they had just won. And uh, and I, I was crying and... Um, then a little like a little further away I looked and I saw uh, like a, a family with their child and they were just being really loving and caring with their with their child and somehow that made me feel better uh, I don't know I, I just felt you know maybe it was it was just sort of a reflection of love and such and but yeah I felt like that was that was nice I felt like I kind of needed that ritual you know I I for a long time I was so like 
you know, I moved away from like religion and all of these things, but I do think that like regardless of of whether your religion and your spirituality and your beliefs, I do think that ritual and tradition can be can be a comfort. So that's what I try to do. I remember in your book, you talked about two TV episodes that you were particularly affected by the Mother Simpson episode of The Simpsons, as well as the Mother's Day special on Rugrats. The Rugrats Mother's Day special destroyed me in fifth grade. I remember writing in my diary, like, I'm so sad, I can't stop crying. I cried myself to sleep. I drew a little picture of me just sobbing. And it was because I was still in that time when I wasn't really able to talk about what had happened. And I was having sort of a brief respite of from, you know, my anxiety and such, but that just triggered something in me. And the thing is that it is a really sweet episode about one of the characters' moms dying and him learning to accept that, you know, her memory is all around him. And I think that's like a really good thing for for children who've experienced loss to to know. But I couldn't deal with it. The episode of Rugrats that Mara's referring to is aptly titled Mother's Day. It aired in 1997. There's actually a kind of weird story with the evolution of choosing to make Chucky's mysteriously never-mentioned mother be deceased. In an Entertainment Weekly segment celebrating the show's 25th anniversary, the show's co-creator Paul Germain revealed that the absence of Chucky's mom was actually never intentional. That it wasn't until seasons two or three that they started to think about why they never showed Chucky's mom. He also said that he and the show's co-creator had approached Nickelodeon at the time and pitched the idea that maybe Chucky's parents were divorced. But Nickelodeon said that it was too heavy. So they said, okay, well, then she's dead. And Nickelodeon said, no, 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 we definitely don't want to talk about that. That's scary. Children don't want to see that. So they just dropped that topic. However, this episode was created after Jermaine left the show. And when asked his thoughts about this episode, he said, I just sat there thinking, we weren't allowed to do this, and now you guys are doing it. And that's something that I regret. The premise of this episode is that Chucky finds a picture of his mother who, up until this point, the audience has never seen. And he gives this picture to his dad, Chaz, as a Mother's Day present. What's the matter, Chucky? I don't know. I thought it was a really pretty picture. I guess my dad doesn't like it, Tommy. Chaz tells Chucky that his mother died of a terminal illness shortly after his birth. He explains that she wrote a diary while she was in the hospital and reads a poem aloud that she wrote for Chucky. And here's the poem. Please excuse the weird music in the background that they chose. This is her diary. She started keeping it when, uh, when, she, when she was in the hospital. The last thing she wrote in it was a poem for you. My sweet little Chucky, though I must leave you behind me, this poem will tell you where you always can find me. When the gentle wind blows, that's my hand on your face. And when the tree gives you shade, that's my sheltering embrace. When the sun gives you freckles, that's me tickling my boy. When the rain wets your hair, those are my tears of joy. When the long grass enfolds you, that's me holding you tight. When the little wind sings, that's me, that's me whispering night. See, guys? I do have a mom. She's right here in the flowers. And in the clouds. And in the grass, too. And the sun. And the wind. <laughs> and if Chucky's mother's voice sounds familiar, it's because she was voiced by Kim Cattrall. 
Samantha Jones, if you will. Mara also mentions the Mother Simpson episode of The Simpsons. And since she cries, I am morally obligated to keep this bit in. But also, it's a very sweet moment. And, uh, yeah, we would watch Mother Simpson, the uh, the, the episode of, of The Simpsons where Homer sees his mom again, then his mom has to go on. Um, oh God, I get misty thinking about it. His mom has to go underground again, and she hugs him. And, and uh, at the end, he's sitting on his car looking up at the sky. And I, I couldn't even cry at that for years. I can now, but I couldn't cry at that because it felt, it felt too real and it hurt too much because I, I, (laughs) and the fact that I was like relating to Homer Simpson of all things, you know, but just, and just looking at the sky and being like, you know, being like, in some ways she's still out there. It's not in the way that you want, but you know that she's still out there and it's funny because I don't, you know, I don't know if I believe in an afterlife or anything, and but, but I do feel like, you know, people's presence, you know, continues on and lives on through us, and, uh, and and I I felt that very very strongly, and that was that was something, and I'm always grateful that The Simpsons did do that episode because it it I think it did help me, <laughs> in a way, even though his mother doesn't die, but you get the feeling that he's never going to see her again, and. Um, that, that, I think, was kind of therapeutic for me. Well, there's my ride. The underground awaits. At least this time I'm awake for your goodbye. Oh, Homer. Remember, whatever happens, you have a mother, and she's truly proud of you. Oh. Don't forget me. Don't worry, Homer. You'll always be a part of me. It's funny because I also remember reading these books growing up, uh, the Alice books by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. Did you ever read those books? Mm-mm. Um is about a girl whose mother died when she was young and there were a lot of things in there. She was being raised by her, her dad and her brother. And one thing that was always strange to me was that like, she could talk to her dad and brother about anything. Like I never talked to my dad and my brother about my periods or bras or anything. And that, and that kind of made me sad. I mean, like I could have, if like, maybe like, I think at least one of my brothers would have been like, Oh sure. I'll help you with that. But I mean, he works in like medical stuff now, so he wouldn't have been, you know, freaked out. But you know, my dad was much more reserved. And I remember being like, okay, yeah, nobody's, nobody's dad is, you know, so like that, you know, so accepting. And maybe, maybe there were, but that wasn't my experience. You know, my dad was a little bit shy. I actually, he found out that I never told my dad that I got my period. He actually found out him saying to me, um, Mara, you left a mess in the bathroom. And I was like, no, I didn't. It's Anna. Anna always leaves the messes. She's the baby. She's the one leaving her toys everywhere. And he got this funny look on his face and said, no, I think it's your mess. And what happened was like a, like a, I think like a pad wrapper had fallen on the ground, like nothing in it, but like a wrapper there. And he, he got this funny look on his face. And then I went in and I was like, oh, well, this is how he found out. Okay. All right. You know, my, my father very much, I think, didn't want to, he didn't want to make me uncomfortable. He didn't want to interfere. I don't know. I think, I think I felt sometimes like my going through puberty was like a burden on everybody else around me. And that was really hard. But I remember those books were really helpful for me because they were all about a girl going through puberty. And I thought her mother must have died. 
this this writer's mother must have died. But then she had like in a postscript at once, like, oh yeah, my mother my mother wrote me a letter two years ago, you know, as an adult. And I was so hurt and so upset. Tricked. Yeah, exactly. I felt like I'd been tricked. I was like, you fucking phony. I was so <laughs> mad. I was so mad. And also like, I don't know. I also think that those books, like looking back, I think I, I think the character in those books was gay, but they didn't really. And and so, because like she talked about women's bodies a lot. And I think there's always like a fascination with women's bodies and other women around them and stuff. But I remember reading that. And I think, <laughs> I think those books kept me in the closet for a long time as did my my you know just my mother's death in general because I always I was like oh well of course I'm like I want to spend more time with older women it's because there isn't an older woman in my life and this was before like anything sexual really kicked in so I just felt like I was drawn to these you know beautiful impressive women like you know Lucy Liu on film sets and you know people like that and and I was like, oh, I'm just drawn to them because they're they're women and I don't have an older woman's influence in my life. And I think, I don't know, I wonder if that happened with you, too, if you it took you a while to. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it took me a very long time to realize that my admiration for women and wanting to be very, very close to women. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there is like levels to it. Yeah, but I, I mean, I remember thinking that for a while, just being like, oh, of course, I admire them. I look up to them. I respect them. And then later on, I would be like, hmm, but you're also obsessing about the way that they smell and the way that it felt when, you know, they held your hand that one time, you know, like I was actually I had this moment the other day that I was thinking of. I was thinking about how uh, when the movie Chicago came out, uh, I just had this memory of how every time Tay Diggs came on screen, I would be like, oh, my God, he's so hot. Look at how hot he is. He's so beautiful. And he is a very beautiful man. And then Queen Latifah would do when I when you're good to mama and I would go dead silent <laughs> and and I would just I would just not talk through that whole song because I I was overcome with these feelings and you know and and I didn't know what they were you know and at school I would be like does anybody want to talk about how beautiful Queen Latifah is because I just really want to talk about it I also yeah I, I also just assumed I was like oh okay the reason that I tend to be a bit more, more, you know, stereotypically, I suppose, masculine in my interests. And I'm not interested in, I'm, I'm not like, I don't like romantic comedies. I don't like jewelry. I don't like any of these things. I don't, I feel kind of trapped when I have to play two boys, you know, when I have to, to pretend to be something that I'm not with them. I was like, that's because I was raised by a father and three brothers. And I mean, I very much acted like my, my three teenage brothers. They were, I mean, I still, I, I adore my brothers. They are, they mean the world to me. But um, I was like, oh, of course I'm, you know, wearing their hand-me-downs and wearing dad jeans and, you know, zipping up my zipper really fast to make it sound like I'm a DJ and setting off fireworks in the backyard and, you know, watching watching Dazed and Confused with them and, and you know, Monty Python. And all. I'm like, of course I'm more into the boy things than the girl things. And I think... And also maybe because it was nobody forcing you to be into the girl things like I feel yeah. like most mothers do. You know, it's funny because my mom was my mom was very into girl things, but she was also very tough. So there was very much like, yeah, of course, we live tea parties and kittens and we like dressing up sometimes. But like, yeah, you can pretend to be a carpenter in kindergarten while you're playing house if you want to be. You can do that, you know, and, you know, you don't have to do ballet if you don't want to. And uh, you don't have to have an obsession with horses. And so I felt very flexible with that. As I got older, it felt a little bit harder. 
I think my dad was probably relieved in some ways that I was like, yeah, I want to go to the air show with you. Yeah, I want to I want to go to I went to aviation camp, you know, yeah, I, I love going camping. Yeah, I love doing this. I, you know, I want to get my hair really short and I'm I'm OK with going to, you know, Kmart and buying, you know, jeans from the boys section. And and, and it's funny because I remember like that I, I met my friend Julia and her mother died and I was like, oh, surely she's like this, too. But no, she makes jewelry. She's into fashion. She she's really into beauty, beautiful things. And she's very much into very like feminine kind of things and i i looked at that and i was like oh i always knew that i had crushes on girls but i didn't want to i i don't know i i wasn't sure some of it i was like you know i i was able to sort of parse it out but that's something that i don't think i could do till till recently i think there that my mother's death was one of the reasons that i wasn't able to you know i i wonder if my mother hadn't died and also if I hadn't, you know, grown up in the public eye, I feel like I probably, I probably would have come out at like 15, 16, like, you know, when I, when I was having crushes on girls, I would have recognized what it was and not been in denial, but that's not the way that it was. So it happened at what, 27, 28 instead. One of the hardest things for me to do, and I think this is also because I was in the public eye and I had a job when I was, you know, seven, eight years old. One of the hardest things to do is, for me has been to say I was a child. I don't, or I didn't forgive myself for things I did as a child, for mistakes I made, for things I said, for being angry after my mother died. And I actually remember a girl I knew said to me once, uh, she was like, yeah, I had a friend whose who's, like, parents were killed in a, a car crash and she was the only one who survived. And I said to her, is she mean now? I bet she's mean now. I, I think I sensed that the reason I was angry was because of my mom's death. And this was something I asked at nine or 10. But I think that uh, I, I couldn't forgive myself because I think that the circumstances of my life made it so that I felt like I always had to be an adult, which is terrible because when you think you are an adult, and you want to be treated like an adult and you kind of want to pretend to be an adult, your your childishness and your immaturity and your pain, it, it comes back with a vengeance, I think. The, the behaving like a child in all the worst ways comes out at, at the wrong times and at the hardest times. And and I think that that's something that was that was hard for me. When you, yeah, it's it's like, it's like trying to put like your finger on a faucet, you know? The water's gonna come out in different ways and it's probably gonna come out in ways that like squirt you in the eye and make you uncomfortable and make everybody uncomfortable. It's it's like that. It's trying to, to divert that pressure, trying to plug it up, trying to do that is only just gonna make things worse and, and make a mess of it. You can't hold back that pressure. But I think that in recent years, I've been able to forgive myself for things that I said that were to myself, thoughts that I had, I think that you know, you're not responsible for your thoughts. You're responsible, you're not responsible even for your feelings. You're only responsible for what you think about them. And I think that I've also noticed that sometimes I can tend to go kind of be, get really tough and really pragmatic and almost cold in an emergency and just go into pragmatic mode. And I, and I remember there were times that I felt like that when I was young too. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's horrible. I'm, I'm being so insensitive right now. But I think that that's something that I, I learned that I had to do. So I think that I've, forgiven myself for a lot of things that I thought and said and felt at that time. Grief doesn't work in the way that people think it works. I mean, it's something that you carry around with you your whole life, and it comes out at times you didn't expect it, but I think you need to, lead, to let it. Grief has you, you don't have grief. So there are times when just in the middle of nothing, you know, nothing will, sometimes it's just like, 
if I'm proud of myself, if I'm happy with myself, if I'm, if I'm, you know, having a good time with, with, you know, my nieces and nephews or my cousins or something, I'll just think like, I wish my mom could see this and I'll start to cry. Or I'll just think of something kind or funny or, or, you know, supportive that my mother did and I'll just start to cry. But you need to have that. You need to have that, which is why I allow myself to cry now every time I watch Mother Simpson. You know, I, I allowed myself to, to, you know, to cry when I saw Lady Bird. You need to allow yourself to feel grief because I didn't for a very long time. And I also think that it can take you a while to accept that you need to feel grief. But you've got to understand that grief is a, you know, it's a roller coaster. And it's funny, I, I think also I've realized recently kept listening to this one song that came out in 1996 that that's just a cheesy like pop rock song that my brothers loved and I was thinking why do I love this song so much and it's because it came out right after my mom died and I would listen to it and it would make me happy I had these moments of happiness like after my mother died that were very very brief but it's almost like, you know, when you're exhausted, when you're dehydrated and somebody gives you a glass of water. The water never tastes as good, you know? You're, when, you're, when you're sick and your fever breaks, when you have these, you know, when you have a terrible headache and the migraine medication finally kicks in, it never feels better than that, you know? When you just had a panic attack and you're subsiding, you feel this rush of relief. And I think that that's, you know, that's like what that song was for me. That song was like, oh yeah, I heard that song on the radio when I was eight or nine and I loved it. And, you know, there was the one good day I had where I went swimming and I had popsicles and I listened to the song. Which song was it? It's, it's, uh, it's called Sucked Out by Super Drag. But yeah, I'll hear that and I'll I'll think about that and I'll think like, oh yeah, there were some times after my mom died that I had a good day. And I think for a while I felt guilty about even thinking about that. But those moments seem sweeter by comparison. And I think that I'm learning to let myself enjoy that and, and, and trying to do the things that my mother wished she could have done. Those are the ways I think that I honor her and I honor her memory. Mara's book, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame, is available everywhere, and she talks quite a bit about her mom and her childhood in it. You can also find her at Mara Wilson on Twitter. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Moms Did. If you want to hear more, I've started a Patreon where I'll be uploading bonus content not featured in the episodes, as well as more pop culture bits and resources. You can find the Patreon on patreon.com slash deadmomcast. The Patreon also helps me fund a season two. The logo for Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead was created by Christine Tuna, and all the music is from Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller. You can find them at interstellarsarahmichellegeller.bandcamp.com. While you're waiting for the next episode, feel free to review the show on iTunes or leave it a review. The next episode will be released on June 15th, where I'll be talking to my friend Zach about what it was like to lose his mom, who had been sick for nearly a decade. I could have done this. I could have done that. And he goes, that's what I didn't tell you. He's like, if I told you how sick mom was before you left for college four years ago, you wouldn't have gone to college. If I told you three months ago how sick mom got again, you wouldn't have finished school. You would have dropped out and came home to help out.